You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 25th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, what do you read? And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everybody. So, this week. Evan, what's up, man? Take yourself back to the year 1859. The week of... A fine year. Okay, I'm there. A fine time. March 26th. Gentleman by the name of Les Garbeau, a French medical doctor and amateur astronomer, reported sighting a new planet in an orbit inside that of Mercury, which he named Vulcan. Vulcan. Remember that? Right, which doesn't and, exist. That's right. And he shared his oh, reports. Oh, way to spoil with, the ending, Steve. <laughs> he, of course, shared his reports with Jean Le Verrier, who was France's most famous astronomer at the time. Le Verrier went on to present papers not long after that, explaining. Uh, how the planet Vulcan was supposedly having a gravitational effect on Mercury, trying to explain its odd orbit around the sun. And, of course, uh-huh. a little gentleman many decades later by the name of Albert Einstein and his general theory of relativity came along and explained away the need for Vulcan. Well, science it, is a self-corrective process. Yes, it is. Yeah, and then a few years after that, they started uh, a TV show, Star Trek, and they made Spock from that planet. And that's where your mother uh, comes from. No, his mother was from Earth. Oh, that's right. Oh. Why, did, why did that guy, uh, the French guy, name the planet Vulcan? Because it's hot. Vulcan was the Greek god of blacksmithing or something. Yeah. And rubber. Is that why they, that, that's why they uh, call it vulcanization then? Yeah, like vulcanized rubber. Exactly. Because yeah. it's, it's heat treated. Yeah. It's all about the heat. Well, we have a lot of news items to talk about this week. The first one is cold fusion back in the news. And this is coming just about on the 20th anniversary of the infamous Pons and Fleischmann premature press release claiming that they had created cold fusion in the lab. We've talked about this before, but to quickly recap, uh, fusion is the process by which atoms are, or, or atomic particles like protons and neutrons are combined together to form you know, bigger, heavier atoms. This requires tremendous pressure and energy because essentially you have to overcome the repulsive electromagnetic forces of the positively charged protons. And in order to overcome this force, again, you, you need to have something that's confining them closely together. Once they get close enough together, then the nuclear forces take over and they stick together, they fuse, you get a heavier element, up to about iron. This process you know, generates energy. Uh, it creates energy beyond iron. You actually have to put energy into it to, to fuse and make heavier elements. This is the process, obviously, that goes on in the sun that turns hydrogen to helium and the process that goes on inside a, uh, a fusion bomb where, where an extreme explosive force is used to confine the hydrogen together. But as an as a energy source, it is, there's a lot of technological hurdles to so-called hot fusion. Therefore, there have been researchers for the last 20 years looking to see if they could create cold fusion or or room temperature fusion, or what's now being called uh, low-energy nuclear reaction, uh, or LENR. That name, many believe, was specifically created in order to get away from the term cold fusion because Cold fusion has the baggage now of Pons and Fleischmann. People hear that, they think pseudoscience, they think fakery. So researchers who 
are serious and are trying to get away from the stigma of cold fusion are now calling what they do low-energy nuclear reaction. You know, this reminds me, Steve, of what the creationists, you know, you, people used, used to be called creationists and they used to banter it about, but once that lost its luster, they turned it into proponents of intelligent design and other things. So it kind of walks along those same lines. Yes, yeah, a rebranding, if you will. One new news item is the research that the U.S. Navy Laboratory unveiled what they claim is significant evidence of cold fusion. What they are referring to is the documentation of neutrons being produced in the process of low-energy fusion. So as we discussed before, if you, ha- if you are having nuclear fusion, you have to have the byproducts of fusion. If you're fusing he- hydrogen, then, you, then that should, they should fuse into helium. So you have to document, not only is there this excess energy that you can't explain, but that there's actually helium there as well. And that process should also generate neutrinos and other things, although they're not really easy to measure. But one of the things that should come out of that is neutrons. So one of the questions always been, if there's cold fusion going on, where are the neutrons? Well, now the U.S. laboratory researchers claim that they've documented for the first time the presence of neutrons in, the present, in a cold fusion experiment that was generating excess heat. However, the scientific community at large is still largely skeptical about this. They say that, well, there's background neutrons. What they're claiming is really just a little bit above background. It's not uh, really that compelling. It could just be a little bit of error in the measurements. It's not enough to really explain the amount of heat. And so it's, it's still not all hanging together. Plus, they also they don't have a mechanism yeah, they're not offering a mechanism, they, and they haven't discounted, like you kind of alluded to. They they're not they haven't discounted the other potential sources. Yeah, you know you got to knock them down first, like just like in paranormal claims in general. You know, you've Occam's razor. You got to discount the mundane explanations first before you jump to the the really cool uh, exotic conclusion that you'd like to jump to. Right, and there has to be replication. I mean, yeah, sure, one experiment uh, shows some positive data, but this is going to have to be replicated all over the world by many independent laboratories and, you know, to come up with, with, some, uh, right. with some hard conclusions here. And plus, I, they clearly have not demonstrated that they're putting in less energy than, than is coming out, right? I mean, if, if the only report is that hmm. they have a few neutrons that they can't explain where they're coming from, then how is this even remotely close to cold fusion? Like, why would they jump to that well, they're, they're trying to create cold fusion. This is, there are many researchers who, and, who are putting money into this, and you know, the U.S. government is as well, as like a hedging your bets. Right? Hey, you know, sure, this is unlikely. We don't know how this might work. But if it does pan out, you know, then we have a source of energy, a potentially vast, abundant source of clean uh, and cheap energy. We don't want someone else to discover this before we do. So there's some research going on. I think there's some legitimate research going on. But as Bob said, no one's been able to show how you can coax these hydrogen atoms, for example, into fusing with, without the, the tremendous energies you need to, to force them together. They're speculating about new physics in order to explain it, but that's sheer speculation. No, nothing has really been established that could be an explanation. But even that aside... If they could demonstrate that it was that it was actually happening, then we could go on, you know go on to figure out how it's working. But you have to prove to a very high degree of certainty that it's actually happening before we're going to then you know try to discover new physics to explain how it's happening. They don't really have either. They don't have a compelling 
theory about how it could happen, nor do they have the kind of evidence we would need to say, okay, it's happening, let's move on and figure out how it's happening. There's always some problem with the experiment. The amount of energy is not that much, or they don't have the neutrons, or they don't have as much helium. What they're, what they're measuring is only a little bit above the background. A little bit of contamination could explain the results. Or the, the experimental setup that they come up to is not, uh, cannot be replicated in other labs, so they go on to some other design. What I, you know, looking into this, I found the, the parallels with ESP mm. research to be incredible. Mm. Yep. That you have a dedicated group of researchers, I think many of which are serious, that are coming up with these tiny effects that are just at the threshold of a detection and of experimental design. You know, they're, they're barely pulling a signal out of the noise where the slightest errors could explain it just as, as all noise. It's not gaining mainstream scientific acceptance. When somebody claims that they have, they finally have a setup that demonstrates a signal, it can't be replicated. So they seem to be going around in circles chasing their tail and not really making any progress. Also, you know, when I blogged about this, you know, of course, some of the cold fusion true believers showed up in my comments. And boy, you could just substitute ESP for cold fusion in their uh-huh. comments. And it reads exactly like the proponents. Like, you're oh, not, yeah. yeah you're, <laughs> you're not, you don't know, though, you know, citing book after book of, of believers who, who allegedly have evidence and saying you have to, you don't know what you're talking about because you're not familiar with this 10 foot stack of studies and these thousands of studies. Like, well, can you just give me one or a few that that show a, a clear-cut experiment that has all the features we would need it to have, that it shows all the end products of fusion, including energy, and where other things have been ruled out and the design has, has been replicated. They don't have that. Nope. But they have everything else, right? They have every other excuse as to why they don't have that. They got they got the photographs. They got the, they've got the eyewitnesses, <laughs> and they've got the uh, uh, people that were abducted. But uh, right, that's all right, they right. got. And they got it's, Dean Radin. And, uh, right. <laughs> It, they're, they're sort of nibbling around the edges, but you know what? They just haven't achieved the, the necessary evidence to say, yes, cold fusion is happening. But really amazing how the, the parallels are there, the, the way they defend belief in it, in, in cold fusion as a reality, and, and that it's legitimate. It's, uh, it is remarkable. Steve, are you not reading the research? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're ignoring the data, Steve. Cherry picker. And in this case, you know, it's like I'm not a nuclear physicist. I'm, saying, I'm just telling you what the experts are saying. You know, but you are a brain doctor. The, the, in 2004, the Department of Energy <laughs> reviewed all of the research to date, and they said there's no convincing evidence that cold fusion is actually happening. The evidence oh, is the inconclusive. Know, you know? Nothing really new has happened since then. Nothing remarkable. I mean, there's always these, these announcements. Finally, we have evidence for cold fusion. Okay, let's see how that pans out. It doesn't ever really fully pan out, and then they, again, they go back to chasing their tail. So we'll see. I, again, I, think, I don't think we should be putting billions of dollars into this as somebody on this podcast. Neither do say, I. Because it, do, it doesn't they can't be justified. They, they can't say that it's plausible enough to really justify that kind of research. So then they complain, just like the ESP guys do, well, we're suffering because we're not getting enough funding, and that's why we're not producing oh, the evidence that you want. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, you know, funding follows results, follows plausibility, and, you know, you kind of have to build a momentum towards it, and you're stuck in first gear because it's, you're not getting the results that would attract more research money. Yeah, even you know? even Pons and Fleischmann got more money after their announcement back in yeah. in nineteen. Well, they were the first. They, they were the first yeah, that really brought it to worldwide attention, and and everyone got excited. I mean, I got excited back then. 
Um, it was, it was but huge. Now, we're little, right now. now we're a little bit jaded. And you would think that, you know, on the 20th anniversary of, the, of that debacle, you would think that you would dot, at, you know, at least half the I's and, and cross half the T. You'd think you'd be a little <laughs> bit more thorough, you know, when you're announcing this to the world. You yeah. know, at least, come on, guys, just give me something a little more than, than what you're giving me. Right. That's, a, right. that's a good point, Bob, because the Pons and Fleischmann incident is often cited as a notable what not to do in science as far right. as going directly to the media and bypassing peer review yep. through the journals and so forth. Now, Steve, in, in, this, in this case, just to kind of wrap this up, these folks made their announcement at an annual meeting of the American Chemical Society in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So is that, is that similar to what, kind of what Pons and Fleischmann No, no, that's did? perfectly legitimate. Announcing your results at a professional meeting in front mm-hmm. of your peers, that's how you should do it. Okay. And that happens every day. That's perfectly legitimate. Okay, so they at least didn't repeat that mistake. Right. right. I don't huh. think anyone in the cold fusion you know, camp is going to do that. I mean, you'd have to be so well. clueless of history to make that mistake again. Uh, but that's not their problem. The problem is they're, they're, while they're doing a lot of research and gener- generating a lot of results, they're not generating the kind of results that are compelling to anyone except for the already dedicated believers. I wouldn't, I wouldn't announce it until I had Mr. Fusion in the back of my car. Right, right. You know, it's, and it, it's one thing that they announce it, but it gets picked up by the media, and then they, they write captions like, Scientist and possible cold fusion breakthrough. And you know what? There isn't a possible cold fusion breakthrough here. There's, there's this flat out isn't enough evidence yeah. to, Al- even although s- to make that claim. In this case, because the story is that cold fusion is bunk, and the media and the you know the journalists know that that's the story, so that 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 usually does get woven into the press reports, at least in the mainstream media. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's it's already they already are clued into the fact that there's something dubious about cold fusion. So so that's that's how they tell the story. The fight between evolution and creationism is heating up in Texas again. Which, now that I find interesting. Yeah, which we are, which we are very interested in because as, uh, as Texas goes, so does the school book industry in this country. So it's a very important struggle that's occurring. And also it, it will set a precedent, I think, that many states might try to replicate. We just went from cold to hot, by the way, that's for right. those of you paying attention. You're very <laughs> observant, Evan. Thanks. What's happening right now is over the next few days, the Texas State Board of Ed will be taking a final vote on science education standards for the entire state uh, for all public schools. And one of the reasons why this is so important, both to people in Texas and throughout the country, is because this particular vote will decide... Uh, not just the standards, but it's also going to decide how textbooks are going to be written. Um, so what's going to be included in the actual science textbooks. And the issue with that is that textbook suppliers tend to be biased toward whatever uh, the larger states like Texas and California are ordering. Um, that way they can just bulk produce textbooks that will then go out to the rest of the country as well. So that's why people should care, even if they're outside of Texas. And basically, Texas doesn't really have the best the best record for science-friendly standards. They've Over the past 10 years, creationists have tried to sneak in as much uh, basically creationist-friendly text as they can. And most famously, that's included the strengths and weaknesses language, which is all about teaching our kids the, the 
particularly the weaknesses of evolutionary theory. And it's pretty obvious, too, that this is part of their wedge strategy that we've talked about before, where they they get in just a little bit, and then that lets them uh, give teachers the ability to um, to teach whatever they want about creationism, and they slowly get their religion pushed into classrooms. It's a pretty serious thing. Luckily, there have been uh, there's been a huge groundswell of support from scientists and rationalists across the country who are flocking to Austin to testify in front of the school board to convince them to change the language to make it to to strengthen it to make it more science friendly. And they've been doing a good job, but it's. It's difficult to say exactly how the vote's going to turn out because right now um, the school board is composed of 15 people. Seven of them are uh, avowed creationists and seven of them are not. And then there's a swing vote. So it really is important that people convince them that this is a serious issue that we need to err on the side of science and get rid of all of the creationist language that is that they've been sneaking in over the past decade or so. Right. Now, this also represents the, the latest strategy of the intelligent design creationists, which are there, – there are three components to it under the banner of academic freedom. One, as Rebecca said, is the teach the strengths and weaknesses of, of scientific theories, including evolution. This is sort of like the teach the controversy kind of thing. And they're claiming that Darwinists, you know, the evil Darwinist evolutionists, are trying to shield evolution from legitimate scientific uh, criticism and their anti-academic freedom, anti-free speech, etc. Of course, that's BS. It's already part of science and evolution and, and, and even teaching it to include legitimate strengths and weaknesses of any scientific theory or, or current belief. But they're trying to include that, introduce that language so that they could squeeze in bogus, unscientific, creationist, debunked criticisms of evolution. That's what they want. They want, they haven't been able to make their case in the scientific arena, so now they're trying to use politics to sneak it in through the back door. And again, just for clarification, the strengths and weaknesses language has been in the Texas science standards for the last 20 years. They were taken out in January, and now the fight is about whether or not to put them back in for this next 10-year cycle. Although Uh, strengths and weaknesses has been changed. The phrase is now sufficiency or insufficiency. So you can see that they've they continue right. to adapt right. their strategy to be Here sneakier and sneakier. Yeah. Now, yeah, Representative Wayne Christian is also trying to tweak the system by – he introduced a bill, HB 4224 in Texas, uh, as a, again, as a, rep, as a state representative, trying to put the strengths and weaknesses language back in. But he's also uh, uh, trying to add the, the second academic freedom strategy, which is uh, to say that students and teachers cannot be – penalized in any way because what they believe or don't believe anything that's being taught in the science curriculum that they can only be tested on actually doesn't even say that they could be tested on anything it just says here's the exact words students may be evaluated based upon their understanding of course materials but no student in any public school or institution shall be penalized in any way because he or she subscribes to a particular position on scientific theories or hypotheses that is an extremely vaguely worded yeah. Bill, it doesn't. Yeah. It, what that opens the door to is a student being able to give their anything that any personal belief, their religious belief or whatever, as the answer to a science God question. Did it. 
Yeah, they could say to anything, <laughs> well, this is my belief, right? And I, you can't penalize me with a bad grade. You can't penalize me in any way, right? You know, making me do extra work by giving me a bad grade, by whatever. For me, subscribing to, what does that mean, subscribe to? Does giving it as an answer on a test mean subscribing to it? It's so vague that it, it, it's, it would be a terrible, terrible law. But that is the, 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 uh, the second strategy of claiming that you know, students and teachers are being oppressed for their beliefs, uh, which, of course, is absurd. People are test on, tested on what they know. Can they demonstrate that they understand the material? So this bill, if it, it, it's either completely redundant or to the extent that it means anything, it's completely anti-intellectual and anti-scientific. Uh, sorry, just to clarify, that bill doesn't really have anything to do with the school board meetings that are happening right, right. now, though, right? Okay. No, that's yeah. right. This is, a, this is a separate bill, but, he, but obviously he's trying to influence you know, what happens. He's trying to basically use right. the legislative process to impose this upon the standards. But it, it's, a, it's a separate issue. I mean, the bill may go through and the, and the, the school board votes down the, 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 these changes in the standards themselves. That's right. They're basically separate, they're, they're parallel separate strategies to get to achieve the same ends. Right. If these changes go in, don't you think somebody would very quickly actually test it a la scopes and, uh, and, and claim that – and you know, basically take a test, say God did it to every question and then test it and yeah. say, all right, I dare you to fail me. And then, of course, some teachers won't fail uh, – will fail somebody for that. And then you mm-hmm. could say, well, hey, well, look, look what this bill says here. And, and even if the guy's an atheist, it doesn't matter. Somebody will, somebody will test that, I think, very quickly. Just to uh, to see what happens, right, right, yeah. That that'll be uh, that. That's the trick: is how it gets applied. Can it be tested legally? You know, we'll we'll have to see. And just just for completion, the third strategy that the creations are taking under the academic freedom banner is to say that teachers should be free to use outside unapproved material in teaching their classes. Again, transparently designed, just so that they could use the right. like explore evolution, you know, crappy textbooks that that the Discovery Institute produces basically creates propaganda as unapproved al- you know, alternate outside material. Uh, and again, just saying they should have the freedom to do that. Of course, the, the fatal flaw in that whole line of argument is that they're confusing academic freedom with standards, quality. with quality yeah. standards, right? So they're basically saying there shouldn't be any standards or any way to enforce any standards. Um, and of course, they don't want standards because they don't meet them because creationism is not science. It's pseudoscience. Well, I think that with the the school board meeting that's going on right now, what I find most interesting is that this clearly highlights the power of of a school board. And a lot of people often ask us how they can make a difference and how they can help rational thinking. I often suggest that the the best way to help is by uh, encouraging you know, scientific thinking in children. And even if you're not a teacher and if you're not a parent, you can still do other things. You could run for the local school board and you could have control over the scientific standards in your local schools. It's a, you know, it's an important thing to do. And if you have the time to do it, then by all means, please, (laughs) we need more rational people on these boards. So we'll pro- we may have an update on the whole issue uh, next week after the vote happens. Uh, Bob, tell us about the new breakthrough in synthetic blood. Yeah, this really caught yeah, Bob, my... Bob, I hear you're an expert in fake blood. Is that right? <laughs> in many ways. But in this case, British scientists are embarking on a three-year plan to be the first to mass-produce synthetic blood. 
Now, this is led by the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Surface. And the idea here is that you take leftover embryos from in vitro fertilizations, embryos that would be thrown away anyway, and uh, you find one that would, that would produce type O blood. Uh, and type O, of course, we, as we all should know, is the universal donor. There's, there is no tissue rejection. Anybody can receive a type O. Um, and for a typo? Our, <laughs> typo. And for our for our so inclined Japanese listeners, remember, blood type O people are very social and outgoing. They are creative <laughs> and popular and love to be the center of attention and appear very self confident. All right, back to reality. If you have type O blood, you should eat uh, raw fruits and vegetables and, and uh, fatty meats. Also, you should send us uh-huh. money. <laughs> That's right. Lots, lots and lots of money. <laughs> Absolutely. So once. Once you've identified the embryo that has the genetic code for type O blood, then you give it a special nutrients and bam, you've, you have a literal unending supply of mature red blood cells. And not only that, the blood cells that are produced this way, they can't transmit infections or blood diseases or otherwise taint the blood supply because they've never been coursing through a human's veins and, have, and could be infected in any way. Um, so this seems like a no-brainer to me, um, except... Of course, there's those pesky ethical issues that some people have regarding embryos. Oh, and don't forget the moral issues. So to be clear, there are ethical and moral issues. We got that? <laughs> don't right. start that. So, on those two ca- yeah. So <laughs> cancer is also is not a problem either. Now, you ever, look, you ever wonder why a red blood cell has that kind of weird shape? It's because, Every day. Yeah. I, is, I know why. Well, why, Jay? Because it, it carries oxygen in there. Well, it's kind of like the middle of it is kind of like depressed, and it's it's like that because oh, uh, it has no uh, nucleus. It has no nucle. It has no nucleus. It's a nucleated. When a blood cell is maturing, it kind of spits out um, the nucleus, which is then eaten by macrophages. But it spits it out, and which is actually <laughs> it's it's really interesting eaten because by macrophages. What macrophages is the oh, kind of yeah, like. Macrophages Army. are the cells in your immune system that basically eat up any dead tissue, or cl- they're the cleanup crew for any any dead tissue. And they body. are and they are so cool looking too. Look them up. They don't get enough uh, enough recognition. It sounds like I had a, a, a student who in my in a class with me. This is just a funny aside. Who ha- was trying to go to go to medical school with English as a second language, and it was unbelievably challenging Jeez. for them. I'll never oh, forget oh, no. that they used to instead of saying macrophages, they said macrophages. <laughs> Racist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man>. Close. <laughs> that was good. But go on. Macrophages. I vomixed macrophages. So, since the um, the blood cell doesn't have the DNA, it can't it can't transmit and it, cancer. The cancer just can't be copied incorrectly or, or whatever because it, it doesn't have it. Now, there are downsides if you know if a red blood cell is injured, it can't repair itself because it doesn't have the code to repair itself. But it doesn't matter. I mean, it only lives like like a hundred days. But this is actually a key development in mammalian evolution because because for whatever reason our blood cells kind of ejects the nucleus, it allowed the red blood cells hemoglobin to carry more oxygen, which gives us a more efficient metabolism, more so than, say, fish or reptiles or birds, because they do, their red blood cells have a nucleus, although it's kind of inert, it's still there. So their hemoglobin can't carry as much oxygen as ours can. I thought that was uh, an interesting aside. Um, Another interesting aside is that I... The United States may have actually dropped the ball on this technology. Last year, a group 
called advanced cell technology, they use this very technique to produce, they produce billions and billions of these cells using this technique, but they had to renounce the project because of the limits set up by the Bush administration. Yeah. Hopefully, maybe in the near future, we'll, uh, they'll unrenounce it now that some of those limits, have been, those limits have been raised. There doesn't seem to be too many technical hurdles, although they are predicting it could take years before we see any of this. The biggest hurdle looks to be one of scale. Um, yeah. the, the advanced cell technology group produced billions of them, billions of red blood cells, and that was the most ever created using this technique. But just a liter of blood would require like something like 5 trillion or 5,000 times that number. So yeah. hopefully there won't be any problems once you try to make this you know, uh, an industrial process. But it, in the future, who knows, in our lifetimes, we, might, we may see these blood factories that can be brought to disaster zones and, and battlefields and, and produce uh, blood on site. And I'll end it with, uh, just it seems odd to me that, Steve, maybe you can answer this. People are calling this artificial blood and or synthetic blood. I don't see this as artificial or synthetic blood. To me, and maybe my understanding isn't adequate, this is, this is blood. This is blood blood. It's as bloody as it gets. Maybe they, it should be synthetically produced real blood but why artificial blood i mean this is real the real deal isn't it well i guess because it's not coming from a human donor uh but you're right it, the terminology can get confusing because there are synthetic blood products yes on the market these are things that do not have red blood cells it's just fluid that can carry a lot of oxygen for example and it's something that if someone's bleeding out on the battlefield it's something to put inside of them that will at least carry some oxygen and maintain their blood pressure uh so to distinguish it from those kinds of products you're right maybe it should be called synthetically produced blood right i'm sure i'm sure some new terminology will emerge yeah next we have a message from richard saunders from the australian skeptics this is an open letter to pharmacists directed towards pharmacists in australia but the same concepts apply to pharmacists anywhere so let's take a listen an open letter to the pharmacists of australia Australians trust pharmacies and chemist shops. As pharmacists, you play an important role in the health of the Australian public by functioning as a conduit between doctors and prescription or pharmacy drugs. You also have a respected role as a first resource for medical advice for many people in our community. We are all familiar with the slogan, Ask Your Pharmacist. When we ask our pharmacist, what kind of answers do we want? not quack products like ear candles that do nothing except pose a hazard. We now ask our Australian pharmacists, what standards do you set for yourselves? You sell a growing number of products for which there is little or no scientific evidence of efficacy. Calling them alternative does not make them work. Examples include homeopathic preparations, magnetic pain relief devices, detox programs, dodgy weight loss products, and ear candles. Such products commonly appear in the natural medicine section of the pharmacy, but are sometimes displayed alongside real medicines whose benefits are scientifically proven. Ear candles are of particular concern. There are reports of serious injuries from them, including temporary hearing loss, burns, ear canals blocked by dripping wax, and punctured eardrums. Health Canada has banned them in Canada, even the first professor of alternative and complementary medicine at Exeter University, Edzard Ernst, called for them to be banned. 
Despite this, many Australian pharmacies are still selling them. To quote Etzard Ernst, ear candling is one of those cam modalities that clearly does more harm than good. Its mechanism of action is first implausible and second demonstrably wrong. In my view, therefore, it should be banned. What next? Will you start selling cigarettes like the supermarkets who you do not want to be allowed to sell pharmaceuticals because they do not have qualified staff? What standards do you set for yourselves for staff? We see a growing trend of so-called practitioners with little or no scientific training being brought in as consultants, including iridologists, homeopaths and naturopaths. Iridology is a discredited way of diagnosing the dysfunction of internal organs via the markings on the iris. There is no evidence that it works, but some pharmacies promote the fact that customers can get readings in their stores. Your customers rely on you and anyone in a professional capacity within your store to provide sound medical advice and products. We fear in some cases they are receiving what amounts to little more than magical sugar pills and spurious health advice. Pharmacies need to make a profit, but this should not be done through quack products and bad advice. To regain the status a pharmacy should have, a place to get sound advice and effective medicine, supported by scientific and clinical evidence, we implore our pharmacies to stick with worthy products sold by knowledgeable staff. Signed, Australian Skeptics, Inc. Well, let's get to some questions and emails. Question number one comes from Josh, and he writes, Just thought I would share a link I ran across. This one really got me tickled. And he links to quantumjumping.com. Keep up the good work. Love the new site. Oh, and by the way, there actually are skeptical rednecks from the South. I know I are one. Well, thanks, Josh. Awesome. Uh, this is a an amazing website, oh, quantumjumping.com. dot com. I think I saw this show back in back in the eighties. Quantum jumping. Right? What was that? <laughs> we spare okay. no expense here at the SG. <laughs> That's right. I by coincidence, I had found this site a couple of weeks before that guy wrote in about it. Jay, there are no coincidences. <clears throat> okay, by total total planning of the universe, I found this site. This is this is the site to read if you want to see what bullshit is about. <laughs> this is this grade A, no holds barred. Well, it truly is everything. Every scam, every type of BS that anyone could pull is ch- it's packed into this thing. I'm telling you, this guy is very untalented. Now it's not it's not Time Cube. Let's not let's put things in perspective. Yeah, it's not the Time Cube, but you know it's pr- it's this is a little bit more calculating. And less psychotic than Timecube. Well, I, I don't even know how to like slowly reveal this one. I, I think I oh, should just here, say just what jump it is. in. Just Basically, jump in. Go. here it is. <laughs> here it is. In essence, after tons of reading, after like incredibly, uh, you know, the tunnel website where you drill down and you just scroll down and scroll down, <laughs> scroll down, you finally get to it. This guy says that you can be, be can learn anything by jumping into another dimension and learning it from an alternate. You. Not just another dimension. That's true. A parallel dimension. Yes, parallel <laughs> dimension where you know how that, that whole thing about there's infinite infinite dimensions and there's an infinite versions of you that oh, know yeah. everything right. and all this. Michio Kaku. So I signed up for it to, to his free quantum course, right? Oh, you did? And, uh, 
I got the secondary email. Like you know, you get you get like an email that gives you like the link that that's deeper link, and there's a ton of testimonials and all this stuff. There's a little bit of audio on there, and basically you scroll down and you see like, oh look, you know, these are some paintings that he made because what he did was he he learned how to paint from an alternate version of himself. And he also learned how to write books from an alternate version of himself. Where did he well, learn how to make websites? Because he needs yeah, to go back to that alternate that universe and punch him in the face. No version of himself knows how to do is build a good-looking website. <laughs> this is the this is like the big setup one in big bo- black bold letters. This may be a little hard to swallow. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? What would you say if I told you, in all seriousness, Sorry. that the keys to everything? You've ever wanted in life success, talent, wealth, health, happiness, beach houses lie hidden in alternate versions of the universe we live in. You're crazy. I would say you're crazy. (laughs) Do I get a free Snuggie with my order? (laughs) Then he says, are you still with me? Did that sound crazy? It did to me at first. (laughs) No, And and that's precisely why I've been holding on to this until right now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, and that time is now. Why? Because some of the finest minds on the planet are starting to discover evidence supporting my claims. Geniuses like Stephen Hawking, Michio Kaku, and Neil Turok, all of whom are responsible for unbelievable breakthroughs in the field of quantum physics and have absolutely nothing to do with the bullshit that you're claiming on this website. In fact, I believe... Did he mention Scott Bakula? I believe it was on this very podcast that Michio Kaku said that these alternate universes are forever separated from you. Forever, ever, forever, ever. And that yeah. the, because of decoherence, you cannot access them. So there. You can't even jump Even for into painting them? lessons? If, if they even exist. If they even exist, you can't access them. In the very beginning, uh, like on the first page at the top, he asks you a bunch of questions. Do you love your work? Do you spend enough time with family? Are you earning enough? Are you putting your potential and talents to full use? Are you as healthy as you should be? Are you truly happy? <gasps> But Jay, don't miss the big one here. Do you wake up every morning feeling 100% fulfilled? <laughs> so, I mean, this is a transparent, you know, sales pitchy manipulation. You know, I uh, I actually took the course that he offers and I made it to the final level. And I don't mean to ruin it for you, but um, right, that's where he teaches you how to jump to an- another universe and meet yourself yeah for how much and then kidnap oh. yourself and bring yourself back to this universe and force yourself to be a slave to yourself awesome what's the awesome. name of this video a game a sexy slave quantum <laughs> jumping quantum jumping it only cost it only cost 127 bucks is that it that's all I love how they come up with these these numbers. Where did he come up with 127? Why not 125? One of his other selves told him to charge that. You're going to make twice that back the the first time you mug yourself in another dimension. <laughs> 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 That's level four. <laughs> but what I want to know is how come no one from these other dimensions have ever jumped here to steal my skills? Yeah, yeah. Like Steve, you're actually like one of the skilled versions of yourself. I mean, I was just in another dimension where I was getting totally wasted with another version of you. (laughs) I'm a stoner in another dimension. Yeah, yeah. He's like, man, I would really love to learn something about the brain. (laughs) Where could I do that? (laughs) What happens? What happens if you go to like twenty or thirty universes and every you that you encounter is stupid and has nothing to impart? That would yeah, be a bummer. Yeah, what if, what if everyone you encounter is smart and good at something, and you have to assume that you are therefore the stupid one? Right. But check this out. So this guy jumps into an alternate universe, mm-hmm. 
finds a, a version of himself that can paint, mm-hmm. and then like that guy's like, "Oh sure, I'll, let me teach you how to paint." It'll take twenty years to get your skills up to where mine are. Like what? What? What did he just have like a conversation? All right, here's a brush. Now here's how you hold it. Now here's some paint. Now go back and paint. How is that any better than just going down the street and getting lessons from like the right. art student, like a painter? Yeah. <laughs> what he's implying is that. You just magically learn whatever your alternate self knows. Oh, just, so, magic. like when you just touch, like touch your elbows, and it's like, Meh. yeah, something I like that. Click your heels. <laughs> <laughs> it's like exactly the Matrix, the like downloading it, it from the Matrix, right? Well, mm-hmm. his other self is a shitty painter because these <laughs> <are horrible. laughs> he ain't no he Salvador Dali. You know what I'm talking about? Wouldn't you just pop to another universe, rob a bank, and pop back? Talk about a perfect crime. Hello. Hmm. Yeah, just pin it on your poor schmuck. Screw um, yeah, screw him. Really, an alternate version of myself jumped in from a parallel universe, <laughs> stole the money, and franked me for it. Oh, that old story. <laughs> he absorbed my bank robbing skills. <laughs> the parallel, not the parallel universe defense again. Oh, uh, okay. All right, enough of that stuff. Well, let's move on from quantum jumping to super chimney. This one, wow. that this was one, very natural. That was above and beyond the Call of Duty. This one comes from Joker Mage. Super chimney. <laughs> he writes, "Hey SGU, have you heard of the super chimney? The basic no, idea is that a giant chimney could reduce the effects of global warming and provide a source of wind energy. It sounds a bit fishy to me, but I can't put my finger on why, and I don't have the subject knowledge to figure out the details. Would this actually work? Am I being too critical? What am I missing? Thanks for your time. So this, uh, this guy who has the Super Chimney website, Michael Pezachinsky, I don't think he's the con artist that are no. quantum jumpers. I think he's more of a crank. His idea is basically if we construct a three-mile or five-kilometer tall and one-kilometer or 0.7-mile diameter chimney, that it will help with global warming. Now, some of the effects that he has uh, come up with is that if we have just 10 of these, just 10 of these uh, mega engineering projects, um, they'll produce 330 gigawatts of electricity. Um, which is about 15 super powerful nuclear stations right. equivalent. Um, it will induce lots and lots of rain in you know whichever area, wherever any of these towers are. It'll apparently induce a lot of rain t- to fall. Um, it'll transform 300 square miles of desert into arable land. If it's if you build one on a desert, uh, the rain of course will you know produce land that uh, uh, you could do all sorts of nice stuff with, and it'll also trap. Or sequester uh, approximately 1.5 million tons of CO2 a year in, in in the soil, and I didn't really look at I didn't look at too long at his at his equations, but you know on the surface this stuff seems it seems plausible. Uh, apparently, if the longer a chimney is, the greater the differential differential between the temperature and and pressure produces an incredible updraft that you could then. You know, I think he he claims that it could be 300 mile an hour updraft, a uh, huge amount of force, if, especially in a, in a chimney that's almost a mile wide. And then if you put air turbines there, then you could then create electricity. And then the rain is caused because of the warm air that it's expelled from the top of the chimney would then cool, and then the cool air, of course, can't hold as much water. And then you'd have cloud formation and lots of rain. And uh, and it'd be a carbon sink because the the soil would retain some of the carbon, and so on and so on. And uh, the main point 
is that it would these things would facilitate the heat exchange in the atmosphere and cooling the earth in the in the process. Yeah, so that's one question if the basic concept will work. We'll just build it if you could build this thing, would it cause enough of an updraft that uh, it could be a, a power source. That seems plausible. I mean, you know, the sun heats the air, and it's like it's the same. It, to me, that would be the same as a uh, a waterfall turning a turbine. You know, a, a hydroelectric plant. You know, this is just you're taking advantage of some potential energy in in the in the Earth system in order to to have things have something go travel down as potential energy well and drive a turbine. Fine, that, I have no problem with that. Uh, I have a problem with building a three-mile-high chimney. I mean, I, I don't know that this would be structurally feasible. With a, at a mile wide? Yeah, I mean, you know, there yeah. there are inherent limitations to just the material. Uh, that And the you know what the, the winds are like at, at that height? I mean, the, the shearing forces on this would be incredible. I doubt that we could make it work. Now, I actually emailed this guy, Michael Pesachinsky, and I asked him that question. I said, have you had any engineers look at the feasibility of this just as purely as an engineering project. Forget if it'll work or not. And he wrote, As to the feasibility, my invention was analyzed by engineers. However, nobody did real feasibility studies. Hmm. So the answer to that is no. So until I see some calculations from a, an engineer, this is pie in the sky, if you will. The, my other what if prob- it was made of carbon nanotubes? <laughs> right, well, you know, sure. Ah, ha. Made of some super material ah. that we haven't developed yet. Now there's pie in the sky? Ugh. More stuff to clean up. The other problem I had with his chain of reasoning is that he said his whole uh, idea that it will make it rain there by increasing arable land, and and that will be a carbon sink. And what I wrote to him also is, won't you just be moving water from one place to another? Uh, the reason why deserts are deserts is that the water was dumped from those clouds before they they got there. And there's there's no moisture to drop, you know. So I don't see how this would change that. And if you could, if this did, you know, funnel moisture from one area, it, it would be robbing it from the next place where it was going to rain anyway. And this is his. This was his answer to that, which I think is I think his answer is completely wrong. But this is what he said: whether it will take water from other areas, yes. However, it will happen uniformly over the whole surface of the earth. Wrong. It'll take it from wherever it takes it. It'll take it from that local area where the tower is. It's yeah, not going to. How's it going to know that? Yeah. yeah, in the world, there's weather patterns in the world. It's not like it's going to uniformly just you know slow, take a little bit of moisture from all over the world. Why would it do that? No, it's going to have a localized weather effect. So I don't think there would be a net increase in arable land, even if it did produce rain, as he claims. Which I'm not, I don't know if that would actually happen or not. Um, and that's a big part of his treating the global warming claims, is that you're creating this extra carbon sink. I'm not sure I agree, though, that the water, the Earth does not have enough water to p- possibly transform some desert into non-desert, a non-desert that's region. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that sucking it out of the atmosphere locally isn't going to do it, though, because that's going to be taking it from somewhere else in the atmosphere. It's not going to be changing the equilibrium of the water cycle. It's just going to be shifting it from one place to another. That's my you're point. If you turn sum. a desert, yeah. if you turn a desert into an oasis, then you might turn an oasis into a desert. Exactly. That's, ah. that's, that's and then what I'm wouldn't that still, even if you could suddenly turn a desert into an oasis, wouldn't that still be a major issue when it comes to delicate ecosystems? And I mean, there there are a lot of animals and yeah. plants that thrive in a desert situation for a very good reason. And yeah. you know, good point, like Rebecca. How, yeah. how would a government ever let you pull the permits to make this kind of thing? I mean, without. <laughs> 
without knowing what the environmental Im- ultimate environmental uh, the environmental impact, impact studies would go on for for years oh decades yeah. if not actually I'm, I'm not trying to be hard on on michael i think that it's an interesting idea you know i think he's trying to think in a provocative way and that it's it's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment but if you want to take it to the next step and be taken seriously, you need to do more of the nitty-gritty science, right? Just having a big idea is nice, but the things that actually change the world are when you do the, the engineering feasibility studies and prove that the thing is not going to collapse under its own weight. Do that yeah. and yeah, you know, yeah. do the other kinds of the hard science analysis, and then you're not just a guy with big ideas. You're actually doing something real. The email correspondence you had with him, Steve, it sounded like he's already drawn all these conclusions and, and – is saying, yes, indeed, it will do X, Y, and Z. Well, his equations were, I mean, I looked at his equations. He clearly, I don't know how mathematically inclined he is, but he clearly has some knowledge, and he put a lot of effort to that. I mean, he's, yeah. he's trying. I'm not sure if he has any, what kind of degrees he might have in any in any of these specialties. But, I mean, he, he put a lot of effort, a lot of serious effort into it, and it was a, an interesting try. I, I just don't think, I think there's just, pro- problems with it that, uh, yeah. that would kill it from, just from a feasibility Here, Here's the problem. And I've, I have known either personally or you know, as acquaintances through other people or just over the internet now, a lot of guys like Michael, right? Regular workaday guy who has a big idea and, and wants to run with it. That's great. But you know, very few people actually bring these things to fruition. And, and the difference is – one of the differences is that you know, what Michael should be trying to do is to disprove his idea as hard as he can. He should try to prove that it's impossible. And only if his idea survives all attempts to show that right. it's impossible th- does he really have something. You know, he needs to be play, be his own skeptic to say, "All right, this thing cannot work; it will collapse under its own weight." You know, is there any possible way something this big could stand? How could that happen? Let's, you know, again, try to shoot it down as many ways as you can. What I what I see happen though with the guys like this, and this is sort of the Neil Adams thing too, although he's taken it to a whole new level, is that they start to defend it jealously, and they look for all the reasons why it would work, and they become very dismissive about any criticism or any skepticism, and then that becomes incredibly counterproductive, and then they're off into crankland, right? When they do that. So th- my advice for the Michaels of the world is, you know, do do the real science thing you know, by by trying to shoot your own idea down as many ways as you can. Yeah, and improve your idea and let it evolve. Like, you know, give it the time and respect that it de- deserves and take it to a more sound place. And if it dies, move on. Yeah. Move on. A lot of big, great, interesting, provocative ideas are wrong. And you only really get into trouble when you just don't have the guts to say, you know what, it was a great idea, but I, I showed it's not feasible. Let me move on to the next thing because this is not going to work. And Michael, every once in a while, just go out, have a drink, get laid. <laughs> just just have a good time. You know, like don't just sit there and talk about chimneys because the, the chimney's not going to get you laid. I could do a quick name, not logical fallacy. We haven't done one of these in a while. So I wrote a recent blog entry about uh, UFOs. And a commenter left a, a long comment. This was one piece of it. He is responding to this quote from my original blog entry where I wrote, not one piece of physical evidence, no smoking saucer, right? Commenting on the fact that despite all the claims, there isn't any piece of evidence that is a smoking gun for the existence of alien spacecraft. And the commenter wrote, 
Aliens do not hand out trinkets, that's true, and neither do they sit in for book signings. Some phenomenon are not given to tangible in-my-hands evidence, although there is loads of trace evidence. Show me your physical evidence for a supernova, and I'll show you mine for a flying saucer. I've got multiple and independent eyewitness testimony in the millions, spanning several decades across the globe with trace evidence and excellent photos to boot. No evidence? I think not. Hmm. This guy crammed a lot of logical fallacies into his comment. This is just a small slice of it. And this is a very typical response from UFO believers also. What struck me is, show me your physical evidence for a supernova, and I'll show you mine for a flying saucer. Hello? Supernova? I mean, I think you should have picked a, a little bit better example than <laughs> right. Supernova. Right. I mean, I've seen pictures. Here's his point of light yesterday, and here's this exploding thing the next day. Right. We've actually seen a supernova go through the entire process from star to black hole. Ma- you know, matching predictions wow. and, and all sorts of things. Uh, that was just a bad example. So that, that's, a, that's a false analogy. The false analogy is in saying that uh, you, you shouldn't believe in supernova with the kinds of evidence that we have for supernova if you don't believe in, UF with, in alien spacecraft with the kinds of evidence that we have for alien spacecraft. But they're different claims. They're not analogous claims. All right, so basically what this guy's saying is there's a ton of evidence. What's your, what's your problem? Right. But what kind of evidence? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an argument from popularity since all of his evidence is eyewitness testimony. Right. So millions yeah. of people, so he says, have seen it. But right. I mean, again, though, that's just, it's just wrong. But I think the overarching <laughs> logical fallacy here is special pleading. Yeah, yeah he's, doing, he's doing a couple of kinds of special pleading, but basically saying that he's actually, even though previously in his comment he said there is a smoking saucer, now he's saying, all right, well, maybe there isn't, but we don't have to have that kind of tangible, unambiguous hands, evidence, evidence yeah. because aliens don't hand out trinkets. That's special pleading. And we don't have the high-grade evidence that would be truly compelling, but we have lots of low-grade evidence. So please accept my tons of low-grade evidence because you shouldn't expect there to be high-grade evidence for this claim. That's special pleading. Yeah, good point. And also by, um, what does he say? Excellent photos. Um, yeah, excellent ufologists. photos. Blurry, blurry blobs. Right. That's, that's streaking a, lines. That's a technical term to refer to tin pans flying right. through the air. Right. As opposed to most excellent photos. <laughs> totally red. <laughs> totally red. Yeah, the photos. photographic evidence is um, uh, crap. Uh, yeah, the point I made there was that there is not, there are no photos or videos that are simultaneously unambiguous and have been vetted for a fraud. So that are real and unambiguous. Either you have real photos of tin pans flying through the air, or you have these really impressive flying saucers buzzing, you know, hotels that are totally CG and fake. But you don't have something that's both real and unambiguous. And now, Randy speaks. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Folks, I find it difficult to believe that Dr. Carl Sagan has been dead now for some 13 years. I'm reminded of him just about every time I open a book, access an internet site, or discuss scientific matters with colleagues. He's been in my mind recently because of the heavy attrition rate of my friends. 
My heroes are all passing away. Isaac Asimov, Dick Feynman, so many who have inspired and encouraged me over the years. Carl was very much aware of the need for science education for everyone, not because he expected that everyone would become a scientist, but because he felt that every citizen should know, at least to some degree, how the real world functions. I couldn't agree more. In my own work, I daily come upon persons who have no knowledge whatsoever about the simplest of scientific ideas, and even less about the technology that has resulted from science. They adopt mystical ideas to explain what they experience, and that naivete makes them easy prey for others who can, and will, take advantage of them. Years ago, while working with Dr. Sagan briefly at Cornell University on a course titled Critical Thinking, I commented on the high percentage of Asian students that I could see were on campus. Carl told me that the greatest distinction he had found between Western and Asian students was that many of the Western students were satisfied to work for a passing grade in their classes. But the Asians expected that they should obtain perfect grades, not just satisfactory ones. That is an excellent work ethic, and it should be preached to every student, in my opinion. In his book, The Demon-Haunted World, Carl expressed how important an education is in today's civilization. He wrote, We've arranged a global civilization in which most crucial elements, transportation, communications, and all other industries, agriculture, medicine, education, entertainment, and protecting the environment, profoundly depend on science and technology. We have also arranged things so that almost no one understands science and technology. This is a prescription for disaster. We might get away with it for a while, but sooner or later this combustible mixture of ignorance and power is going to blow up in our faces. We in America, 300 years ago, to our great shame, underwent a period in which we blamed innocent individuals we called witches for troubles and calamities, choosing to believe that these persons, mostly women, used supernatural powers to cause these problems. We hanged these innocent citizens at the same time that our brothers in England, France, Italy, Germany, and Spain were burning them alive as punishment. Carl Sagan pointed out that in those earlier times, there were reasons for fear and superstition, reasons that should not be part of our mindset. Again, in the demon-haunted world, in 1995, he wrote, I worry that, especially as the millennium nears, pseudoscience and superstition will seem year by year more tempting, the siren song of unreason more sonorous and attractive. Where have we heard it before? Whenever our ethnic or national prejudices are aroused, in times of scarcity, during challenges to national self-esteem or nerve, when we agonize about our diminished cosmic place and purpose, or when fanaticism is bubbling up around us, then habits of thought familiar from ages past reach for the controls. The candle flame gutters, its little pool of light trembles, darkness gathers, the demons begin to stir. I cannot tell you how much those words of Dr. Sagan have affected me. In a manner far more eloquent than I could ever have managed, he expressed my thoughts, and I hope that you, being able to experience his writings, will also feel that he spoke for you. I sincerely hope so. The message of this great man cannot grow old. We must recognize that despite our becoming more mature, more rapidly, in so many ways, we must be always vigilant. It's been said before, 
To forget history is to be forced to relive its errors. These demons of which Carl spoke are still out there, somewhere, waiting for their opportunity. We cannot allow them to come back to life. Our greatest enemy by far is ignorance. We have the weapons to defeat it, and we are increasingly able to do so. Teachers of the quality of Carl Sagan exist in every culture and every city and village, in every school and home all over this planet that we call home. To nourish those teachers, to encourage them, to assist and support them, should be one of our greatest, our most important goals. When all people are armed with knowledge and can organize to oppose and banish hunger, poverty, disease, distress, and discouragement, those elements cannot flourish, and those are the demons of which Carl Sagan wrote and spoke. I'll leave you with this short tale. Some years ago, I was seated in my office, reading on my computer screen with great amusement a joke about astronomy that had appeared on the internet. I laughed and suddenly froze, looking at my left hand which had begun to reach for the telephone. Folks, I had been about to call Carl and tell him about this amusing story. Well, I have absolutely no belief in an afterlife. Like Carl Sagan, I am a realist. But if it were possible to survive this life, and if Carl had been able to do that, I'm sure that he would now be out there in the cosmos he so loved and respected, chasing an interesting comet or testing the temperature of a galaxy. Because his work survives him and we can enjoy it, learn from it, and most importantly, add to it, I can feel Carl Sagan was many things, but his greatest accomplishment, in my opinion, was that he could teach. He did it painlessly, convincingly, provocatively. He not only knew his subjects, but he loved them in the classic way that all great teachers have followed. He had a firm, modulated voice and a superb manner of expressing his thoughts, a manner that was both poetic and colorful, He can be understood by anyone who would read his words. I'm James Randi. Thank you. And thank you too, Carl. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And you all could play along at home or in wow. your car or submarine or whatever you happen to be doing at the time. But if you Join do, us. you owe us money because right. we charge you. You have to give us a quarter every time you play the game. Yeah, we're broke. <laughs> and a dollar if you jumping. Win. All right, here we go. Item number one. A new study shows that the morbidly obese, on average, are as active as those in the normal or overweight category. Item number two, researchers have developed a system for treating blood infections that uses a magnet to draw the pathogens out of the blood. And item number three, new research shows that expert advice can shut off the decision-making part of the brain. Evan, I believe it is your turn to go first. I hear a new study shows the morbidly obese, on average, are as active as those in normal or overweight category. I'm inclined to think that that's somehow correct, although... You know, I'm not really sure what the criteria is there, how they measure that. You know, their definition of active, I guess there is a a definition that you could attribute to that that would make that true. Well, they're not saying active, he's the saying as the, active. As active. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes down to what is active. And then researchers developing a system for treating blood infections using a magnet to draw pathogens out of the blood. Sure, you know, not because of the iron in the blood, though, because magnets don't attract 
to the iron that's in the blood. But magnet to draw the pathogens, there could be a way of doing it. So I think that one's right. And therefore, expert advice shutting off the decision-making part of the brain. Now, I, I kind of doubt that one. I think that's uh, overreaching or overstating the point. So I'll say that the expert advice shutting off the decision-making part of the brain is fiction. Okay. Bob? Let's start with three. Hit these in reverse. Um, expert advice shutting off decision-making part of the brain. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, you listen to the expert, you trust them. Reminds me, I immediately, I immediately think of uh, the Ponzo scheme guy. What's his name? Madoff, the Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean, people people trusted this guy as the expert. He they he made the decisions for them, and they trusted him and went with it and didn't vet, you know, his uh, his process or his decisions or anything well enough. So I yeah, I, that makes sense to me that you just let the experts do the hard work and you're like, yep, okay. And they don't think about it. Uh, let's see the blood infections using a magnet to draw pathogens. I think Steve's trying to trick us on this one. I I, I think it's possible that that could be done. Uh, who knows? I'm sure they're not using kitchen magnets. If they're using a magnet at all, it could be pretty darn powerful uh, magnet that's not going to be hanging off your refrigerator. Um, and who knows what pathogens in the blood might affected in some way by by magnetic field. Now, the number one is what. I'm not buying this one. The morbidly obese, on average, are as active as those in the normal or overweight category. I'm not buying that one. Morbidly obese. I mean, they're you know morbidly obese is big. I just can't see them being quite as active as normal and or overweight people. So I'm going to say that is fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Yeah, that one uh, seems fishy to me as well. It could be right in that um, only only if. The morbidly obese people in question were just as active, but still managed to consume vast amounts of calories. Um, I have seen studies, um, including one fairly recently, that it showed that women thought that they needed to exercise more when, in fact, all they needed to do was cut down on calories. So um, it's plausible, but... eh. The other two um, seem more plausible to me, even though the blood infections using a magnet makes me worry that it's going to get warped by people peddling magnets. I do think that that sounds true. And as Bob summed up, um, yeah, it's not just in the Bernie Madoff thing, but in just about every pseudoscience we look into, there's usually somebody in a position of leadership that convinces a bunch of people to shut off their BS detectors and accept something wholeheartedly. So that seems perfectly plausible. So I'm, I'm going to agree with Bob and say that the first item about the morbidly obese people is incorrect. Okay, Jay. That they are not as active. Yeah, I would, I would tend to think that the uh, one about morbid obesity seems to be the fake. I mean, on on a first look, I mean, I've done a lot of reading about this. I just can't see someone with that much extra body weight being as active as someone at a normal body weight. Uh, so I will pick that one as the Okay. Fake. So you all agree that researchers, researchers have developed a system for treating blood infections that uses a magnet to draw the pathogens out of the blood. And I'm actually surprised there wasn't more skepticism about that claim because that that was, in my opinion, We're the very most fantastical sounding of the three. It smells of a trap. But it is science. But that one is science. Uh, so this is actually a pretty interesting technique 
that they developed, not not fully built for human applications yet, but they were able to, to develop this technique. What they do is they take tiny magnets and they attach to those tiny magnets antibodies to a specific pathogen. Then they inject that into a patient so that the tiny magnets bind mm. to the pathogen in the blood of the patient. Then they you have to put ah. it then you put in catheters so you you do like a uh, dialysis kind of thing where you take the blood out of them and you filter the blood and then you put it back into them. But in this case, instead of putting it through a, a filter to reproduce what the kidney does. Uh, you you run it through a powerful magnetic field, which which separates oh. out the pathogens which are bound to these tiny magnets from the blood. What a great idea! Yeah. It, it pulls it through a membrane into a separate chamber so that it's separated from the blood, and then the blood without the pathogens goes back into the patient. And they demonstrated this was about eighty percent effective. So it removed eighty percent of the pathogens from the blood. That's, well, that's pretty, pretty good. good. Does it pull anything else out of the blood, though, accidentally? I wouldn't think so, no. I mean, I, when I first read this, I'm like, the magnetic field, Oops. that's not going to do anything. It's not going to pull bacteria or anything out of the blood, but it's because they attach the, the magnets with the antibodies. Yeah. Uh, and what they, they actually looked at this one with, um, with a fungal infection, with, with a fungus. Uh, but it, it could work for, with anything where you could you know, have the antibodies to, uh, to target it against, against the pathogen. So... Pretty cool. Now, blood infections are very serious. Uh, taking all com- all comers, they have about a fifty percent mortality. Whoa! Although the uh, the press release says that since most existing treatments are ineffective, and it's like, eh, I think it's one trend I find is when you have a new innovation that they always overemphasize mm-hmm. how ineffective the existing techniques are. It's like, well, no, we have antibiotics and stuff like that. So they're, they're, depending on the type of infection, there, there are drugs that, that work. It's just that people are usually get so quick, so sick so quickly, and whatever situation you were in that made you septic in the first place is probably very dangerous, that it still has a high mortality rate. So there definitely is a need for more effective treatments for sepsis for a blood infection and removing 80 percent obviously wouldn't completely eliminate the infection itself right. but it, re- it would reduce it to a level that now your your immune system and the antibiotics or the antifungal agents whatever it's giving it will have a chance to treat it before it kills you you know so uh this could be a very effective treatment if it all pans out cool idea uh let's go to Number three, new research shows that expert advice can shut off the decision-making part of the brain, and that one is science. (laughs) (laughs) Science? Nice little twist. Hard skip to beat there. How does it shut off the decision-making part of the brain? So it shuts it off. Shut it off. Evan, Evan, let me give you some (laughs) advice. Okay. (laughs) No, shut up. So this was a, a functional MRI study. So they were actually looking at the actual activity in the brains with fMRI. And the, what they found was that they you know, gave subjects a choice between uh, – there was actually a f- two economic or financial decisions where they had to choose either like a guarantee of a low amount of money or a chance of a range of, of possible outcomes but potentially more money but only a chance for it. And when they made the decision by themselves, the typical established – decision-making parts of the brain would light up. But then they had a financial uh, you know, advisor tell them what choice was better. And in those cases, 
the subjects went along with the expert advice and the decision-making parts of their brain did not light up. So it did not – it did quote-unquote shut off, meaning they, did, they were for – the, for the making of that decision, they were not employing the decision-making apparatus of their brain, which suggests that the actual mental process we go through in following the advice of an authority figure or an expert is different than the mental process we go through when we're making a decision on our own. You might think the alternative thinking might be that we incorporate the advice but then still make the decision ourselves. And that's what they were trying to investigate here. Mm. Are you just using the expert advice but still making the decision on your own just with, with that extra information? Or is it really a different mental process you're going through? This suggests it's just, boop, you shut off your decision-making process and you just go along with the authority figure, which of course is bad. Uh, yeah. At least it's bad in, 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 in the context that skeptics often think about and in modern society. Probably it was a useful thing back in the day in our evolutionary milieu, given that we you know, probably lived in a hierarchical tribal type of situation. There may have been Darwinian advantages to following authority figures. Who knows? So this means that a new study shows that the morbidly obese on average are as active as those in the normal or overweight category is complete and utter fiction. Stop making stuff up. In fact, a study shows that the morbidly obese are sedentary for more than 99% of the day. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. lot. Seems like a lot. (laughs) They are not moving much at all. Steve, if you had put that f- figure in that question, I think you would have gotten more resistance you, you from the other so? three as far as choosing that. Yeah, I thought yeah, ninety-nine that's... seems almost a hundred. How can that be? I mean, if ninety-nine percent of the day you're awake, what you're, you're sitting on the couch, you know, day? whatever. What? Well, how? What? What do you do all day? Sit on the couch. <laughs> what do you mean? You sit down. You, know, you don't move. Yeah, but even if you're playing a video game, but no, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Playing a video yeah, game is active. A, is active. You have to be walking around or moving. So, for example, it turns out Jay is actually sedentary ninety nine percent of the day. <laughs> That's why I'm curious Just about this. Ninety eight percent. I haven't moved in sixteen hours. <laughs> they, they found that they walked. He's like, well. No, I've been playing video games. This moving. <laughs> they found that they walked less than 2,500 steps per day. Do you know what the healthy yeah, guidelines 20, are? 10,000. 10, steps per day. So that's less than, 20, less than yeah. a quarter of what the minimum I'm, is for healthy it's fif- living guidelines. 15 minutes a day. 15, less than 15 minutes yeah. a day of walking. Yeah. That would be what like 1% of your day is. All right. Well, good work, guys. Except Evan. I get to say except Evan <laughs> this week. But Jay, two in a row. Two in a row, Jay. Ooh. Good, job. Good job, Jay. I'm back. This one you picked by yourself. Yeah. I'm back. I can't believe All it. All right. Well, let's go on to... Uh, who's that noisy? And now on the Skeptic's Guide, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Well, that <laughs> noisy. That is incredibly cute. Very that cute. is my favorite. I love these. Yeah, that's... I, I love that kid. I want to kiss him right now. <laughs> that, that's, that'll get 88 million hits on its own. Right. I want him to do every intro for every segment we have. <laughs> yeah, let's have him send another. Or even just like new Who's That Noisy clips just from him. <laughs> if I could choose the voice of my future robot servant, it's going to be that voice. <laughs> That's creepy. You just made yeah, it creepy, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. <then. laughs> Your kid's name is uh, 
James. He's six years James. old. James. And that came in from a, a listener from the UK named Sean Ellis. And that was his son. He got his son to do that little uh, intro. So, what for we us need, we, listeners, we love it. is little kids to do the intro for Who's That Noisy in every kind of accent that there is. We want Australian and Irish and Scottish <laughs> and German. Ooh, yeah. Swedish. Do it. That's a Make it happen. <laughs> All right, Evan, tell us what the answer was to last week's after we play it again. Ready? Ready. Here it is. As a NASA employee performing climate change research during the Clinton-Gore administration, I was told what I could and could not say during congressional testimony. Since it was well known that I was skeptical of the view that mankind's greenhouse gas emissions are mostly responsible for global warming, I just assumed that this advice was to help protect Vice President Gore's political agenda on the subject. Oh, who was that? That was our... Our not-so-friend, or I don't know, maybe he's a friend, Dr. Roy Spencer. Oh, yeah, Roy Spencer. He's my best friend. And uh, Roy Spencer is one of the more vocal uh, opponents of the theory of man-made global warming. Mm -hmm. He's a former employee at NASA. He is currently working at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And I hear him on the radio quite a bit. He goes on you know, television talk shows and so forth. And obviously he also gets up in front of Congress and talks about his experiences uh, having been a government employee and so forth and being in the group of folks, group of scientists who think that uh, man-made global warming is, uh, well, not what's going on these days. Right. So well, it's, po- it's possible. Our friend from the board, Belgarath, was the first. Awesome. Well That's done. a great D&D <laughs> name. <laughs> it's what the Fragnar kind of name is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well done. <laughs> All right, Evan, what do you got for this week? All right, here comes this week's Who's That Noisy? All right. Wow. That's the That's, sound the Martian uh, ships made when they shot their death rays out in the war, the original War of the Worlds. <laughs> we come in peace. All right. Well, that's interesting. I found that one very interesting. So, Well, thanks, Evan. No problem. Thanks, Jay, please Hello? regale us with a skeptical quote. I found a cool quote this week. Uh, this is from Jean-Paul Sartre. Did I say that right? I'm sure some French listener will correct us. I was about to yeah. say, for, for an American pronunciation, it's I a think bit that's uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. He's <laughs> 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 not alive. So jump. No, he's dead. Jesus. Died in 1980. Oh, On April 15th, sad. Bob. He was a French existentialist, a philosopher, a pioneer, a dramatist, a screenwriter, a novelist, and a critic. And a quantum jumper. He's a leading figure in uh, 20th century French philosophy, and Jean-Paul said or wrote, she believed in nothing. Only her skepticism kept her from being an atheist. Ooh. Jean-Paul Sartre! <laughs> <laughs> hey, what was that? that was a nice finish. I like that. <laughs> Smooth. Well, thanks everyone for joining me. It's fun as always. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. It was all good except for science. Don't forget to sign up for (laughs) TAM, the Amazing Meeting 7N, for the Science-Based Medicine Conference. Sign up for it. Register now. We're all going to be there. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 